Hi, and welcome to Gender and the Bible, session one. This is our re-record after some te technical difficulties during the live recording. Uh, thank you for your interest in this subject. Uh, this is a very uh, important subject in today's day and age, and I'd love to pray before we dive in, because if the Holy Spirit doesn't breathe on these thoughts, then they are just that. They're just words. So we're praying that God would transform our hearts. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, I pray that you would illuminate truth for all those listening to or watching this recording. Would your word come alive in our hearts? And I pray that you would help us to untangle what can be a very complicated, painful subject for many. Uh, would you equip us both for our own spiritual formation, but also to help uh, those who are struggling to love with the compassion of Jesus and to speak with the truth and clarity that Jesus speaks with. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, if you uh, track along with the slides, um, there are electronic versions of the slides. Uh, you'll see a QR code for life groups if you're in Waco and are connected to Antioch Waco. would love for you to join a life group, and um, this is where... This kind of content gets worked out over time. Uh, all the complexity of our lives and the challenges uh, is best worked out in a community of people. So you can scan that QR code, put your information in, and get connected to a life group here in Waco or wherever you uh, hail from. Uh, your local church context is your best bet for walking out uh, these challenges in a small group community. Um, if, if I haven't met you, my name is Mick Murray, and I serve as the equipping pastor here at Antioch in Waco. Uh, my wife and I have been here for a little over 20 years. I've served on staff uh, for probably about 17 of those uh, years, and uh, I've served in a variety of capacities, pastored a couple of churches that we uh, helped plant, and have led our discipleship schools, and now serve as the equipping pastor. It's like a teaching pastor uh, at other churches. I am married to Stephanie of 17 years, and we have four boys, Aiden, Paxton, Mason, and Hudson, uh, 12, 11, 10, and 8. So we have our hands full. Uh, I do want to put a few resources in front of you. Um, I uh, Consulted multiple resources in preparation for this course. Uh, three that rose to the top are in your slides, and that is Abigail Favalli's The Genesis of Gender. And her book is more of a deep dive into uh, creational intent, looking at Genesis 1 through 3. She writes as a feminist studies um, expert. She came out of a very liberal, kind of secular world in her studies, had a, a conversion to Catholicism in 2015, and she just has profound insight on God's creational intent from Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, another uh, book is uh, Preston Sprinkle's Embodied. This is far more practical. Uh, Preston Sprinkle kind of walks through the scriptures and what it means to be male and female, speaks with a lot of compassion to uh, folks who are struggling with these issues, and has a lot of uh, practical insights for church leaders, for parents, for educators, uh, and so on. And the third is Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. 
Um, this is looking at the theory of, of personhood more generally, kind of within secular society today. What does it mean to be human? And some of those modern notions, how that has undermined um, the, uh, the physical embodiment of humans and what that means for homosexuality and euthanasia and eugenics and transgenderism and uh, other social issues. And so it only touches this topic tangentially, but she does a fantastic job spelling out uh, kind of where we are in the world today. So those are a few book resources. Um, the uh, documentary Disconnected is also a great resource. You can find that online, and that speaks specifically to transgenderism, though I know this course is more broad than just transgenderism. We're looking at gender more holistically. All right. Um, if you were here live, we're uh, doing question and response, but we don't have an opportunity to do that through the recordings, of course. And this is a three-part series. Uh, this first part is a biblical theory of gender. This is a vision of where we want to be, what was God's creational intent. Uh, part two is a secular theory of gender, essentially where are we and how did we get here. Uh, week three, we're going to look at more uh, practical considerations, so some practical parenting thoughts, pastoral thoughts, uh, how do we move forward based on where we are in our society today? And so as I've talked with people, a lot of the questions that people have tend to revolve around some more of these practical thoughts. I have a child who just came out as transgender, or I have a friend or a loved one um, who demands certain pronouns are to be used, and so on and so forth. So that's primarily going to be in week three, and, uh, and, and these first two weeks are more foundational to help us get to the practical considerations. If we don't lay good groundwork, then uh, it's going to be hard to apply practical considerations in real time. All right, so before we dive in, a couple of disclaimers. Um, people watching this uh, recording or listening to this recording are going to come from a variety of backgrounds. And I would assume that there's some real pain associated with this topic for a lot of people when it comes to the topic of male and female. Uh, in addition, we might have people who are simply curious uh, about this topic. Um, there are a variety of motives and reasons that people seek out uh, clarity when it comes to what it means to be male and female. So it's difficult to create content that covers the vast spectrum of the, the situations that people are coming from. And specifically for those who are coming from a place of pain, uh, and, and even more specifically, pain regarded to how the church has handled uh, the issue of transgenderism, of gender more broadly, um, people who struggle with uh, those questions, maybe not finding a home in the church. And I just want to apologize as a church um, uh, staff person, as a pastor. Uh, if you're watching this or listening to this and you've experienced pain at the hands of other Christians, uh, then that's not the heart of God. Um, our goal in this course is to present both a compassionate and yet a, an orthodox uh, truth around what it means to be male and female. But my prayer is that if you struggle with these, uh, these questions, these issues, that you find uh, a home in the people of God to begin to work this out. 
Uh, this is a very complex set of topics. This touches on major philosophies, hundreds of years of thought progression, social issues, political issues, and there's simply no way to cover it all. And on top of that, for me personally, this is something of a working theory. Uh, I've wrestled with this topic in particular over the past couple of years, and I'm still in process. And so I'm offering thoughts in this series that I might look back on in a year from now or a month from now or even a week from now and have already revised my, uh, my thoughts and how I would present this. And so I present these thoughts humbly uh, with a grain of salt and invite you into the process of discovery with me. Like the Bereans, my prayer is that these thoughts would, would cause you to, to press into the scriptures, to seek out truth uh, for yourself, to study the scriptures, to diligently um, look through them to see if these things are so. All right, uh, a couple more disclaimers. I want to talk about why I'm not qualified to teach this course. Uh, number one, I'm male, and I'm teaching a course on gender, which includes male and female. And I have a very one-dimensional understanding from a lived experience of what it means to be uh, one of those genders, male. Um, I don't understand the female perspective because I have not lived it. And so in the future, uh, my goal is to present this course alongside a woman so we can give a balanced perspective. Um, furthermore, I've never struggled with gender dysphoria. That, that word dysphoria, if that's new for you, that means kind of a, a, an unease, misgivings with my gender. I have never thought that I might be a woman. Uh, I've been quite secure in the fact that I'm male. That being said, I have questioned at times where I fit in the world of men. Uh, being born something of an introverted, uh, creative thinker uh, at times in, in different groups of men. I haven't quite known how I fit into those circles. So I have had something of a, a very mild struggle in that area. Um, I'm not the parent of a transgender ch uh, child. That has not been my experience. My children are still, uh, at the time of this recording, they are still quite young. So I have not raised children all the way to adulthood, and I can't speak with authority uh, to those issues from a firsthand experience. I also don't have any friends, close friends who are transgender, uh, though I do have quite a few friends who are gay, uh, but I, I have not been able to flesh out these thoughts with somebody who's living them and has struggled with some of these questions. So that's why I'm not qualified to teach this course, but here's, here are a few thoughts why I am teaching this course. The first is that I am passionate about spiritual formation. Uh, that is about people being conformed to the image of Jesus. And I think that how we understand our sexuality is a big component of our discipleship to Jesus. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a father of uh, four boys, and I, I want to be equipped to raise them as men of God, whatever that happens to mean in the scriptures. Um, I see this topic of gender influencing people directly, like I already mentioned, maybe experiencing pain in their own confusion, or indirectly, where we have friends and family members or just the broader culture and society that we live in, uh, where it has uh, began to erode elements of our faith. And even as I was preparing this content, I was speaking with our youth pastors, Sean and Shannon Jones here in Waco. And they were saying in, in our church in particular, there's not necessarily a, a lot of youth who are 
uh, are questioning their own gender. But what is happening is as this, um, as, as what it means to be male and female is being redefined more broadly within the education system, within social media or broader uh, media outlets, it is, it is subtly uh, calling into question other elements of the faith as well. As, as gender fluidity is normalizing, um, it, is, it is set in contrast to historic, the historic Christian faith. And so even if a child is not necessarily dealing with their own gender dysphoria, the fact that this is uh, becoming normalized around them is calling into question other things that may seem to stand in contrast to what they're seeing as widely accepted. Um, I see ways for ch- the church to grow in our response to this issue, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and lastly, why I'm teaching this course, I, I do teach and mentor at the intersection of faith and culture. And I see that this question of gender is actually connected to a lot of really deep questions about uh, the nature of God, about what it means to be human, what it means to live a good life, and so on. So the goal uh, of this course, or the twofold goals of this course, uh, is not that we could win arguments, that we can arm ourselves with some facts and data and go out and put a a relative in their place. Uh, Rather, I pray that this would equip us for, first and foremost, our own spiritual formation, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, And then, uh, how can we be empowered both to love and to speak truth to our generation simultaneously? Love and truth, and to be equipped to do that. All right, so that's my long preamble into this course, and I want to dive in, first of all, with a look at uh, a couple of underlying belief systems. So you'll see uh, in your slides kind of a side-by-side comparison of secular and Judeo-Christian belief systems. And and the reason we're starting here is because if you think of like an iPhone, for instance, I've got my phone up here with me, and uh, the user-facing protocols here on the phone are the apps, and I can uh, click into my music app or my email app or my messages app, and, and I understand that. But underneath the apps is an operating system that if I were to peer into it would be completely nonsensical to me because I'm not a computer programmer. And I'm grateful that there are people out there who understand computer programming because they can make devices as helpful as the iPhone. Uh, this is similar to what's going on in our minds where all of us have an operating system that is um, that is operating in the realm of the subconscious most of the time, except for a few uh, trained philosophers, psychologists who understand what that operating system is. And then we are all receiving inputs that we are putting, we're laying down on top of that operating system. Uh, gender might be one of them, how we think of ourselves as male and female. That's more of a, a lived reality reality in the foreground, but in the background is this um, belief system, this operating system that is animating our uh, kind of day-to-day lives and how we understand what we're encountering in the mundane. And so this is a very simple flyover of, uh, of a couple of different operating systems, if you will. You have the secular belief system or operating system and the Judeo-Christian Uh, belief system. And we can't dive in fully. This would be a course in and of itself. But I wanted to just compare and contrast for a moment to show that these are mutually exclusive. They can't both be right. All right. Uh, We'll just focus on kind of these top six 
um, philosophies. These are some of the major philosophies historically. And don't get hung up on the words uh, if you don't understand the words. The point is there is major contrast between these two. So within the secular belief system, etiology is a term that's borrowed from the medical field, but it just means the study of causation. And so the secular etiology is essentially the Big Bang, that there was uh, you know, this cosmic explosion some billions of years ago, and it, it initiated this process of these blindly um, uh, uh, causal events that led to where we are today. And by some seeming miracle, um, the universe has overcome these complexity boundaries to give rise to uh, our uh, reality today. That's our causation. Beyond that, uh, it's really unknown, you know, and there's lots of speculation out there about the metaverse and all these other, uh, you know, what, what preceded the Big Bang from where did that come? But the Judeo-Christian ideology is, is in the beginning God. God is the uncaused cause. He gave rise to everything out of nothing. And really, this is, um, I can't overstate how significant it is that we understand our origins. And all these other philosophies, if, if you think of what's going on in our culture as this big rat's nest of ideas, and if you were to grab any one thread and follow it long enough, eventually you're going you're gonna to trace uh, an idea back to an origin story. Now, I'm just talking about these two because these are the prominent ones in the West right now. Uh, if we were in other parts of the world or in different subcultures, even in America, uh, you could talk about other origin stories, but for our purposes in this course, we're going to compare and contrast these two because these are uh, uh, likely what are laying down the track in our minds when it comes to our belief systems. All right, downstream from origins, you have ontology. Ontology is the study of what is real, uh, what is substantive. And in the secular belief system, uh, it's only the physical that is uh, real. It's what we can see and touch and smell and measure in a lab that is real. But within the Judeo-Christian ontology, it's not just the physical, what we see around us, but also the metaphysical that's outside of the physical realm. So God exists uh, in a very real sense, but not where we can go visit him if we had a powerful enough spaceship. He exists in another realm, a metaphysical realm, the angelic, the Holy Spirit existing in us, the, the presence of the soul in every human being uh, is a metaphysical belief. Our epistemology is uh, the study of knowledge. How do we know something? And in the secular belief system, uh, we can only know through observation because all that exists is what is around us physically. But within the Judeo-Christian belief system, it's not just observation, but revelation. We believe that we know God because he reveals himself to us divinely through revelation. Um, Teleology is the study of, of purpose or uh, what does it mean to live a good life? What's the highest good, the highest purpose for something? And within the secular framework, if we're just here by accident, the product of time, chance, and chemistry, then there's no uh, ultimate teleology. There's no ultimate purpose to human existence. And so in the absence of a God who objectively assigns purpose, then we are left to be gods unto ourselves, and we give purpose to our own lives. And uh, I would argue that in our day and age today, the, the highest purpose for human existence is this idea of self-actualization, to become the best version 
of oneself. Uh, of course, there are uh, numerous teleologies that people assign to themselves, uh, but that would probably be one that's very mainstream today, at least at the, the time of this recording. Uh, within the Judeo-Christian teleology, it's more objective, meaning it comes from outside of the self. It's not self-assigned. And I would argue that our teleology is laid down in Genesis 1 and 2, that we see that we are made for relationship with God, to be in fellowship with God. We're made for relationship with one another, for the glory of God. And that's summarized in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which we will get to here in just a moment. Our anthropology, that's what it means to be human. Within the secular framework, we are just animals. We're another branch of the tree of life. We are wet machinery. There's nothing uh, exceptional or special about what it means to be human. And, uh, and we are not endowed with a soul. We are just a very highly evolved primate. Uh, within the Judeo-Christian framework, our anthrop- anthropology is that we are image bearers of the living God. So there is something exceptional about what it means to be human over and above uh, being a horse or a sea star or a fungus. Uh, there is something unique about how humans are made in the image of God to reflect his nature to the world around us. And when it comes to our sexuality, uh, again, within the secular belief system, uh, sex is, is just recreational. It's about self-fulfillment. It's an ex- extrinsic act, not an intrinsic dignity or identity. Uh, but within the Judeo-Christian framework, sexuality is, is a, a metaphor of a higher reality. Uh, it, it images God in a specific way, which we'll get into. And functionally, uh, it's how God brings about new life on the planet through procreation. And within the context of marriage, it is a source of fulfillment and joy uh, to be shared in that context. All right, so again, this is just a flyover to lay some groundwork that to show, if don't get hung up on the, all the ologies, but to show that these are two very different belief systems and both are operating in our culture today. And actually, if we were to do some self-reflection, we would find that we uh, probably live some blended version of the two of these. And there's actually something called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism that describes what the average Christian in America likely believes at the level of these philosophies, again, largely subconsciously. But I start here to show that if we aren't conscientious about our underlying belief systems, then when we start talking about things like gender, sexuality, uh, if we're having a conversation and we have a different uh, ontology or a different teleology or if, a di- if we have a different anthropology or think, think about sexuality differently, probably stemming from our thoughts on origins and, and so on, then it's going to be like we're speaking different languages. We can't have a conversation until we talk about some of the underlying assumptions. Until we are operating on the same operating system, the app will not function when we try to uh, download it to two very different operating systems. There has to be uh, some alignment there. And so as if somebody uh, presses me on my thoughts on sexuality, uh, I'm going to dial it back a little bit and go upstream on these um, philosophies and say, hey, would love to talk about that, but let's talk about 
what does it mean to be human to begin with? And uh, why are we here? And is there a God? And if so, what are the implications for where we come from, why were we, were we created, and so on? And if there's not agreement upstream, then we're not going to have a very productive conversation about gender downstream. And so I would challenge us all to evaluate our own belief systems in that regard. Again, these are mutually exclusive, and I don't believe that both can be uh, accurate uh, descriptions of the world around us. You'll see in the next slide um, some implications of what it means to have secular or Judeo-Christian belief systems. And for the purposes of this course, we're not going through all eight or nine of those. But you do see um, in the highlighted portions that secular ideas lead to fundamentally a disconnection and a fragmentation of, of society, of the self. We don't have time to go into why that is in this course, but um, if you're interested in these kinds of underlying philosophies, then uh, Carl Truman wrote a great book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, he also wrote a shorter work uh, to make it more accessible to the average person called Strange New World. He does a great job of, of describing kind of how we got to where we are today within the secular framework and highly recommend you check that out. Whereas the Judeo-Christian narrative uh, leads to connection and unity or integration. Um, you also see that the secular frame leads to uh, what uh, some researchers call psychological emotivism, and that is that our internal world uh, is more um, truthful or more concrete than our external world. So my psychology determines my reality rather than uh, externalities, whereas in the Judeo-Christian framework, natural law, something objective outside of the self, is um, is a more determinate factor when it comes to reality. So in the case of sexuality and gender, I might be biologically male, but if my psychology and my emotions tell me that I am female, then that is more substantive than my biology. All right, so those are huge implications, uh, not just with sexuality and gender, though it applies in this context. And, and lastly there, some of the implications of the belief systems that we hold. Uh, if we are secular in our belief systems, we'll largely rely upon social constructionism when it comes to ideas like gender and sexuality versus essentialism. And again, that just means that there's nothing objectively true about uh, my, my sexuality. Um, it's assigned. It is constructed socially. It's constructed um, through uh, through my upbringing in the media, and then ultimately what I say about myself, that psychological emotivism. Um, the point of showing these implications is that with the secular framework, we live life from the inside out. What I think about myself on the inside determines my reality as opposed to the outside in, that there is some kind of objective reality that gives me identity, purpose, and so on. All right? For the purposes of this course, uh, when you start talking about sex and gender, these terms are used very interchangeably, and it can become confusing very quickly. Uh, it's a bit of a bait and switch to call this course Gender and the Bible. Uh, it is more accurately 
sex in the Bible, but when you say, uh, uh, when you use a phrase like that or, or title a course like that, um, I think people would assign certain assumptions or expectations to that kind of course. So it's not sex in the Bible. We call this gender in the Bible. Though, um, when I look at the scriptures, I see biological sexuality as kind of the, the, the groundwork that God lays when it comes to being male and female. And so when we talk about sex, we are talking for the purposes of this course, primarily biologically, not exclusively, but primarily. When we talk about gender, we're going to talk about gender in a couple different ways. Um, Not that these are biblical notions, uh, but these are probably more recently assigned notions to these terms. But gender identity will be primarily psychological, and gender roles will be primarily social and cultural. And we'll get into that more in week two. All right, as we dive into the scriptures for this first session, we're going to look primarily at Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we'll do a quick flyover of the rest of the Bible and what it says about being male and female. Because again, the, the, the goal of this first session is to gain a biblical vision for what it means to be male and female. And we start in Genesis 1 and 2 because uh, these two chapters are considered the normative teaching on sexuality by the rest of the biblical writers. So if you look at uh, the ministry of Jesus, he refers back to Genesis 1 and 2 in in Matthew 19 when he's questioned by the Pharisees uh, on divorce. And, and he quotes out of Genesis 2, and uh, Paul in Romans 1 and elsewhere uh, consistently reflect back to this creational intent that we see before the fall. Uh, in the beginning, it was not so. It was not God's design that you give a certificate of divorce. Uh, Moses permitted this because of your hardness of heart, but this was not the intention from the beginning uh, in, in there in Matthew 19. And so we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we can't go in-depth verse by verse, but going to pull out some, some themes out of these first couple of chapters. All right, you see this chiasm in your notes. And a chiasm was a, a literary device that's reflexive in nature. Don't worry about that for our purposes today. But uh, the chiasm we see in Genesis 1 is that on days 1, 2, and 3, and you can read it there in the text if you need to pause this recording and go look at the text yourself, what happens is that there's a series of separations that, that occur. Uh, God creates a space and then separates something within that space. So he creates the heavens and the earth, and he separates out light and darkness in day one. In day two, he separates out the waters and the sky. In day three, he separates the land from the sea. Uh, And then in days four, five, and six, these are going to correspond to days one, two, and three, where in day four, he's going to create something that fills the space that was separated in day one with something that's going to bring about fruitfulness. So we see in day four that he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to inhabit um, the separation of day one in light and darkness. We see that day five, he creates the fish and the birds to inhabit the water and the sky from day two. We see in day six, he creates the animals and humans to inhabit the land uh, that he separated out in day three in the land and seas. So the pattern that we see in Genesis chapter one is a, is a process of separation that then is filled with something to bring about fruitfulness. 
There's separation and fruitfulness. Now, if we jump ahead to Genesis 2, which we're not going to do just yet, but we're going to see this pattern where Adam's body is literally separated into uh, male and female uh, for the purpose of being filled with fruitfulness, this uh, gestational ability to bring about life, to fill the earth with the glory of God. Okay, so we see this blessing to fill the earth through separation with fruitfulness. In the next slide, we see the, um, the text in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and verse 31. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right? Now, there's a lot we could break down here, but... I want to start with this notion of being made in the image of God. This word image is the word selem in Hebrew. I'm not sure how you pronounce that as a Hebrew speaker, but it's usually translated idol in the rest of the Old Testament. And what a selem is, is a visible representation of an invisible deity. And so this, this idea here in God creating mankind in his own image is that there would be a visible representation of him on the earth, uh, who, uh, a visible representation of an invisible deity on the earth. So what is mankind made to image? And we see here in this first sentence in Genesis 1 uh, verse 26, let us make man in our image. We have this first person plural and this is this early echoing of this idea of trinity that we see uh, progressively revealed throughout the rest of the scriptures. And if you look at the scholarship on this, people have tried to explain away Um, the first person plural here, but largely the arguments are indefensible. And the historic belief has been that this is uh, an early reference to the Trinitarian nature of God, that he is three in one, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet uh, there is one God. God is three in one in a way that we can't fully comprehend this side of heaven. And so what you have in God is this balance of sameness and difference. He is one God in three parts. And so what we see in the creation of mankind, he makes man male and female, that there is this same balance of sameness and difference within the nature of mankind. That mankind is not just one, but two, two uh, sexes, two genders, if we use that term interchangeably. All right, so both are created in the image of God, male and female, made to image uh, God in the earth. Both are, you see this in the next slide, both are created in the image of God, showing a balance of sameness and difference, or unity and diversity, another way of saying that. Both are blessed and given dominion. And this word dominion is, uh, is one that people struggle with or stumble over. But we see what God means by dominion because in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, what he does is he commissions mankind to tend the garden, to uh, bring about 
maximum fruitfulness and beauty. That's the motive of a gardener. Uh, We hear the word dominion and we think of oppression. We think of usurpation. But that was not God's original design or intent with the idea of mankind having dominion. It was to go out into the world to bring order and beauty and life out of uh, God's kind of raw materials in creation. And it wasn't until after Genesis 3 with the fall that this idea of dominion becomes more of one of oppression. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So both are blessed and given dominion. And both are pronounced good. God stands back at the end of creating all this, and he surveys his handiwork, and he says, it is very good. Both male and female are very good. All right, moving on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says that it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, based on the Genesis 1 passage that we just read in verses 26 through 28 in particular, I don't believe what God is saying here that uh, that it's not good for man to be alone is because Adam is lonely. Uh, What I believe is happening here is that it's not good for man to be alone because Adam in and of himself was an incomplete representation of God. Uh, To image God would require a balance of sameness and difference, of unity in diversity. Uh, Abigail Favalli, uh, who I referenced earlier, her book, Genesis of Gender, she says it this way, quote, the image of God is not on man or woman in isolation from one another, but in their alliance. So God says it's not good for man to be alone, Adam. It's not good for you to be singular, singularly representing me in the earth. So I'm going to make a helper suitable for you. Now, this word helper, uh, again, causes people to stumble because in our vernacular today, it, uh, it connotes this idea of subservience or kind of having a lesser value than the person that is uh, being helped. But actually, the word in Hebrew here is this word ezer, E-Z-E-R is how it's transliterated. And it's used 21 times in the Old Testament, and 17 of those uses are to describe God himself. And it means closer to deliverer when we see this word ezer. And so this is the hero, right? The deliverer is the one who comes to the rescue. And to quote a pastor friend of mine, He says, quote, when you're in trouble, you don't cry help because you need someone weak. You need someone with strength you don't have. You need someone with ability you don't have. You need someone with perspective you don't have. You need help from someone who can do what you cannot do. So this idea of the woman being the ezer to the man is not some subservient lesser form than the male form. This is a complementary form that brings deliverance, and we'll see why here as we move along, but it is certainly not a lesser form. All right, moving on in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, we see that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that's another challenging interpretive 
or uh, translation choice there. The word is closer to side. Um, you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament that uh, this word that's translated rib is often used for the tabernacle. It's the side of, of a sacred space. Uh, but nevertheless, we have the word rib in the ESV and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so leading up to verse 23, whenever you see man or the name Adam, it is the word Adam, which is more expansive than just the male gender. Uh, Adam means mankind, and that includes all of mankind. But in verse 23, when, when Adam sees Eve, when this man sees this woman and, and exclaims, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called, and the Hebrew word here for woman is isha, because she was taken out of, and he uses the word for the first time, ish, for man or male. Um, and beyond verse 23, you have kind of an interchangeable use of Adam and ish when male is referred to, and isha when female is referred to. So it seems that there was an aspect of Adam's identity that he didn't understand until he saw isha, something that was like him but different. You see before verse 21, he's been naming the animals, and uh, a suitable companion was not found in among the animals. And all of a sudden, he sees Eve's body. He sees her standing before him. He says, this is like me. It's different. She's different, but she is like me and understands himself in a different light because he sees this complementarity in the person of Eve. All right, so we can extrapolate from these verses that the importance of the male and female bodies uh, could be summarized in this way, that the body reveals truth, right? Uh, Adam understood who Eve was before she ever opened her mouth. There was something of, um, of, of even the nature of God, the complementarity, that sameness uh, and difference that, that, that Adam saw in her body. The body reveals truth. And this will be very important when we start talking about transgenderism and the obscuring of the physical body in, our creation, in, in the creational intent of our physical embodiment. The obscuring of that actually obscures the glory of God in a profound way. So the body reveals truth. Uh, the body necessitates communion uh, because the body invites reciprocity. And what that means is um, God's creational intent is that male and female together would procreate to create life to fill the earth and subdue it, to, to fulfill his mandate. Well, that requires communion, male and female, to be together in the context of this first marriage. And it invites reciprocity. And reciprocity just means self-giving. Uh, it's not, again, oppression where we take from one another, but I offer myself willingly. We see uh, God giving mankind agency and the, the ability to offer ourselves willingly, selflessly, and not to take from one another. Uh, and we, we see the coming together of Adam and Eve necessitating this communion and reciprocity. 
All right, we see the affirmation of the goodness of the body throughout the rest of the scriptures. The Bible has a very high view of our physical sexed embodiment. And Nancy Piercy, in her book Love Thy Body, goes into this uh, in, in great depth and detail and highly recommend that resource. Uh, Paul's arguments against sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6 are all based on this high view of the body as being a temple of the Spirit, a member of Christ's body, and so on. And, and there have been some uh, critiques of the Christian faith over the year that we are anti, anti-body, but actually the opposite is true in terms of the orthodox uh, belief as to what it means to be human as a very high view of our physical embodiment. Uh, one other thing I want to point out here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that language is really important. And we'll circle back to this in week two when we talk about um, you know, pronoun use and, and where, how we are, uh, where we got to today when it comes to the postmodern use of language. But in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, in particular in Genesis 1, we see that God's speech uh, creates reality out of nothing. Uh, God's speech alone creates reality. In Genesis 2, we see that man's speech, when God tells Adam to name the animals, uh, man's speech reveals identity or reveals truth or what has already been created. Uh, It unveils that which God has already objectively created. And that's really important uh, because in our day and age, it's thought that we can create reality through our own speech. So I can just say what I think about myself. If I'm male, but I think I'm a female, I can say it and make it true. Uh, But that's not creational intent. The creational intent is that God's speech has, has defined or created reality. And then our speech is seeking to conform to that reality and to reveal it to the world, to identify it, to give rise to it, or to illuminate uh, reality. And again, we'll come back to that uh, more fully next, next session. Um, so if Genesis 1 and 2 was all that we had pre-fall, what could we say about male and female? And again, if you look at your next slide, here are some attempts at some definitions. And this, again, is just if we had uh, Genesis 1 and 2. So a male or a man is a body uh, who is organized in such a way or who has a body that is organized in such a way as to initiate life outside of the self, right? We see that in, in our sexual makeup. Um, It is organized in such a way as to initiate life outside of the self, to implant the seed, so to speak. Uh, A female is one whose body is organized in such a way as to gestate life within the self, to receive that seed and to grow a life within the self. And it's important to note here, this is about potentiality and not actuality. So any person whose body is organized in such a way as to initiate life outside the self is male, um, meaning that body has the potential to, even if it's not actualized. So a a two-year-old toddler who's a boy, his body is organized in such a way as to initiate life outside the self, even though that's not an actuality yet because he is not of that age. And the same with a 90-year-old woman whose body is past childbearing age. Her body is still organized with the potential to gestate life, even if it's not actualized in that moment. Or it's true of of a 30-year-old female who is of childbearing age, but for some reason is unable to have children. Her body is still organized in such a way as to gestate life within the self, and that makes her female. Now, 
what this symbolizes is we see that the male is analogous to God in some ways because God endows life from himself, but stands apart from it. And the theological word here is this is um, this points to God's transcendence. And that, that idea of transcendence is that God stands outside of our uh, reality. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnitemporal, meaning he exists at all time, all points of time simultaneously. Uh, he measures the universe in the span of his hand. Uh, we can't conceive of, of what he's fully like. He's of a different nature. He's of a higher form than we are. He stands apart from us. And from that place, we see in Genesis 1, this transcendent narrative that he initiates life. He speaks, let there be light, and there is light. We see in the female that the female is analogous to humanity because humanity's power lies in its receptivity, that we receive the love of God. We receive his initiative, and we're transformed as a result, and we bear fruit. At the same time, uh, the female also reveals God's imminence, and that's the other side of the coin of God's transcendence. So in God's transcendence, he initiates life outside of himself. He stands apart from mankind. But God is also imminent. If God was only transcendent, then we could worship him, stand in awe of him, be in wonder over the, the magnitude of his nature, but we would not have access to him. We would have to stand afar, and you see this in a religion like Islam. But in Christianity, we believe that God became imminent in that he stepped into our world. He stepped through the veil in the person of Jesus and made himself available to us. Actually, we see even in the Old Testament these different theophanies where God shows up and breaks into the world as a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke uh, or the glory of God in the temple, the presence of God available to mankind. But but uh, only approachable to a degree in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, you have Jesus, who is receiving children, who is sitting around the campfire with his disciples, and he is imminent. He is God with us. And and what we see in the feminine or the female as she gestates life within herself. This is just a profound revelation of the fact that now after Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he has sent his spirit to literally uh, live inside of every human being. No male will ever carry a child uh, in the way that a female's body was designed to gestate life. The female alone, the female body is organized to host a life inside of herself. And this, this is a, a picture, a metaphor of this imminence of the Holy Spirit indwelling every person, the, the, or every follower of Jesus. The presence of God in and among us to enable us to continue to bear fruit. A stunning revelation in the bodies of male and female, what they image uh, in terms of the nature of God's transcendence and imminence, in addition to his Trinitarian nature, that again, he is uh, unity in diversity and so on. Now together, the male and female represent unity and diversity, sameness and difference that leads to fruitfulness. They have co-equal value, yet with unique functions. And again, we see this in 
the Trinity. Let me find my place in my notes here. We see this in the Trinity, and uh, Wayne Grudem says it this way, that the persons of the Trinity have different primary functions in relating to the world, though the members of the Trinity are uh, are equal in their godhood. So they are equal in their value, in their nature, and yet they have different primary functions in relating to the world. And we see this right off the bat in Genesis 1 and 2, a co-equal value in man and woman, uh, yet with unique functions in, in their relation to the world, one initiating life outside the self, biologically speaking, the other gestating life within the self, biologically speaking. All right, so that's if we just had Genesis 1 and 2, but we do see that everything breaks down in Genesis 3, sad to say. In Genesis 3, uh, actually, before we get to verses 14 through 19, let me just acknowledge that there's been some destructive teaching in the church throughout the centuries that it was Eve's fault, that the, the fall was distinctly Eve's fault because women are of a fundamentally lesser uh, kind of internal fortitude than men. And this is a, uh, a faulty teaching that has caused great damage in the church. Satan did not tempt Eve because she was weak, but because she was influential. Remember, she is the ezer. She is the deliverer in some senses of of man. He did not tempt her because she was weak, but because she was influential. And we see this because we see Eve's counterpart in Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, both uh, Eve and Mary were offered something by an angel. Uh, Lucifer offered something to Eve. Gabriel offers something to Mary. Both pondered this offer. They gestated it. They uh, they. Uh, incubated these ideas. So uh, Mary gets the offer from Gabriel to to host the Son of God in her, the Messiah. It says she pondered these things in her heart. Uh, Eve also pondered. It says she looked at the fruit. She uh, saw that it was uh, pleasant to the taste and the eye and, uh, and good to make one wise, and she took of it and ate it. Both actually said yes. Eve said yes to Lucifer, the, the tempter's uh, offer. Mary also said yes. And what Mary's yes did is it undid Eve's yes. Both had profound implications for all of mankind. Satan did not tempt Eve because she was weak, but because she was influential. Uh, In Genesis 3, both Adam and Eve are present to hear the tempter. Uh, Both of them eat. Both experience shame. Both end up blaming somebody else instead of taking responsibility for themselves. This is where we see the the beginning of the corruption of language, where previously words were used to correspond to reality, to unveil truth. Now words are used to obscure truth in verses 12 and 13. Uh, And both uh, male and female suffer consequences as a result of sin. Both male and female were culpable here in the original sin in Genesis 3. We see that pre-fall, the garden, Eden, was characterized by harmony, order, communion. But now, this idea of self-gift, that that reciprocity that the body uh, invites, becomes hiddenness and shame. That selfless love, that communion, that dominion of stewardship becomes selfishness or a dominion of 
oppression. And we see this in this text in Genesis chapter 3, verses 19, sorry, 14 through 19. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there's a lot here, but just a couple of observations. Uh, Note that in verses 14 through 19, only the serpent and the ground are explicitly cursed. Uh, Adam and Eve are not explicitly cursed, though God pronounces what the consequences of their sin will be. Uh, There are different perspectives on whether God is prescribing or describing what those consequences will be. Is this a thus saith the Lord moment, or is God simply saying, um, hey, this is going to be the natural consequence of your rejection of my authority? I happen to believe it's the latter, though I could, be, I could be mistaken there. I think God is not prescribing, but simply describing what's going to happen as a result of uh, the fall, specifically interpersonally, that uh, what he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Interpersonally, it seems that the effect of sin is going to come more at the woman's expense. And uh, what we mean there is that there's an imbalance of power that's going to emerge Uh, Men are, on the whole, physically stronger. That's not true of every individual male and every individual female. But on the whole, men are physically stronger. So maintaining this balance of creation will depend more heavily on the male to use his power to serve and not to oppress. And this is a, a... and a kind of a complex thought to unpack, but we see this in the person of Jesus. The most powerful person who's ever lived comes to steward his power in such a way as to serve and to and to give life. Um, Paul uses this metaphor in Ephesians five when he's talking about marriage, and he he's he's giving commands to both the the husband and the wife. He's already said in verse twenty one to mutually submit to one another in the rever- in reverence for Christ, and then he says, "Wives, uh, submit to your husbands." Oh, and by the way, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He stewarded his power to lay his life down for the church that the church might be saved. Not that husbands save their wives, but the pattern is that strength is used to serve. Strength is used to, uh, self, to, to in, in a spirit of self-sacrifice to build the other up. And we see this in uh, in this in this imbalance, we see this invitation 
um, in the person of Jesus. Uh, but going back to this idea that there's this imbalance now and where uh, the dominion of stewardship was meant to bring about life and fruitfulness, now God is saying, hey, one of the consequences of your rejection of my authority is that dominion is now going to be one of oppression. And sadly, women, that's going to affect you likely more than the men because the men are physically stronger. And so Abigail Favalli points out in her opinion, it, uh, it is more incumbent upon men to use their power to maintain that balance and creation that God intended in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I think that's why we see commands in Scripture like the one in 1 Peter 3, 7. Or Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that word weaker is a physical weakness. It's not talking about some moral weakness or uh, some uh, internal weakness, but a physical weakness. He's saying, live with your wives in an understanding way, in an empathetic way, which would have been radical a radical thought in this day and age where uh, it was not um, frowned upon for men to abuse their wives sexually. They, there, were, there were no boundaries sexually for men at this time in Roman society. Uh, men could, women were property. Men could do with, with them whatever they wanted. They could discard them as they saw fit. And so here Peter's saying, and Paul says elsewhere, live with your wives in an understanding, empathetic way, showing honor to her, even though she might be physically weaker, because she is an heir with you of the grace of life, echoing back to that co-equal value in Genesis 1 and 2. Oh, by the way, so that your prayers aren't hindered. Uh, Peter's essentially saying here, if you don't emulate Jesus to your wife, I am not going to listen to your requests and your prayers. Live the way that I lived. Use power to serve. Lay down your life for uh, your wife. And then we could extrapolate this out uh, beyond just the context of marriage and family, that this, uh, this notion of power is to be laid down that the other would be served. And uh, Abigail Favalli points out, this is where feminine, feminism uh, rightly sees something is amiss, something is off, this power imbalance over the, over the ages, but attempts to treat the problem, which is an improper application of power, that's what the problem is, with more of the problem, uh, a usurpation of that power. And this is where uh, the gospel comes in and is the only solution um, where we don't treat an improper application of power with a usurpation of power, but rather with self-giving, this this, uh, laying down, self-sacrificially laying down of our lives that we see in that original intent of God in the communion uh, between male and female in the garden. All right, so now to summarize from Genesis 1 through 3, we see in addition to simply Genesis 1 and 2, we do see primarily a difference between male and female in their sexed embodiment. Again, those definitions of male and female are in your slides. Uh, We see that the, the sexed bodies of Adam and Eve are good, and they reveal the nature of God. Again, his transcendence, his imminence. We see that this follows a pattern in Genesis 1 of separateness uh, and unity, separateness to bring about fruitfulness, uh, or difference and similarity, all to reveal something about the nature of God. And that the body then is a symbol. The bodies of male and female are needed together to reveal the whole. 
they are co-equal in value with sexual differentiation and are, are unequally affected by the cons- uh, consequences of the fall interpersonally when it comes to relationships. Now, that's just three chapters of the Bible. Uh, there, there's a lot more scripture, but that is the creational intent we see in Genesis 1 through uh, 1 and 2 in particular, and then the consequences of the fall in Genesis 3. We want to talk briefly about the sexual differentiation in the rest of the scriptures. There's a lot more text. Uh, again, Jesus refers back to Genesis 1 and 2 as the kind of the normative account of human sexuality. Uh, You'll see in your slides that scripture I referenced earlier in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 8. And uh, and Jesus talks about that in the beginning it was not so uh, there in uh, verse... uh, verse, The end of verse 8. Uh, Jesus' message is one of redemption, to, re- to restore us to our pre-fall state. That's all those re-words, redemption, restoration, restore, um, to, to bring mankind back to this original uh, state in Genesis 1 and 2, and why it's so important to understand uh, creational intent. So what does it mean to be a man or woman in the rest of the Bible? Uh, I want to be careful and... And try to stick to the scriptures as closely as possible when it comes to male and female distinctions. Because uh, something I see in the church a lot is this kind of baptizing these pseudo-biblical stereotypes, really, of what it means to be male and female. And I think that can be quite harmful. So before we get to the scriptures, I actually want to kind of pause here on this idea of stereotypes. uh, Because this is quite prevalent. In, in, in every culture, in every society, it needs to be pointed out. And so you'll see a slide that compares and contrasts the stereotypes we attach to women and to men, at least in our culture today. The stereotype that women are caregivers, uh, overly emotional, creative, play with dolls. They're too emotional to be leaders. They're readers. They're not rational en- enough for the STEM uh, subjects. They're tender and nurturing. They're teachers and nurses. They're thin and they like pink. And of course, these some of these are ridiculous. Some may hit close to home that you might be nodding saying, yeah, that is what a woman is. Uh, men are providers. They don't cry. They're athletic. Boys play with trucks. Uh, they're leaders. They're good at math and science. They don't read books. They're aggressive, tough, and assertive. They're principals and doctors. They're strong, and they like the color blue for some reason. And again, you might look at a couple of these and say and, and start nodding, yeah, that is what it means to be male, and that is what it means to be female. But I would like to propose that these are actually uh, possibly some unhealthy uh, stereotypes. I took a quiz online, actually, and um, answered 30 questions or so and found out that my brain is, this was a, uh, a quiz to find out how male or female is your brain, that my brain is 52% male and 48% uh, female. And they congratulated me on having a very balanced brain. Uh, it, it just was a kind of a comical quiz to me because the 30 questions were largely based on those stereotypes on that previous slide. Uh, you know, when was the last time you cried? What's your objective when you go into the mall? How do you shop for clothes? And so on and so forth. 
And I tried to answer honestly, even though I knew how to manipulate the quiz, I could have um, uh, caused my score to be higher on the male brain and lower on the female brain, but tried to answer honestly to expose how inaccurate these stereotypes uh, can be. Because we see in the next slide that in the Bible, women are certainly caretakers and nurturers, but we see that they also fight in battles and win wars. We see that they are unmarried businesswomen at times, that they are fearless. They funded Jesus' ministry. And then just in Proverbs 31 alone, we see that women are providers, landowners. and actually uses that word. She provides for her family. Landowners, dressed with strength, industrious and profitable, philanthropic, creative, wise, and blessed. We see that men are certainly warriors and leaders, but they also kiss other men. And that's uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's... it's uh, a kissing, a kiss of greeting, uh, but they cry. They're tender-hearted. They are profoundly emotional. Just read the Psalms, David, this man after God's own heart. And I have a theory that, in part, uh, David was considered a man after God's own heart because of how emotionally fluent he was. He was um, uh, a warrior, but also a poet. And this is this is pre- preserved in the scriptures as something to emulate. Uh, Men are relational, profoundly relational uh, in the case of David and Jonathan, for instance. Uh, They're commanded to turn the other cheek, to raise and teach their children, to be humble, gentle, and patient. Stereotypes might fit the natural desires of many or most individuals in some cases, but not all. Uh, Stereotypes are descriptions of how many people behave, but not prescriptions for all. And I would argue that in the scriptures, men are never commanded to be masculine or women to be feminine. Rather, both are commanded to be godly. Uh, The scriptures are very expansive when it comes to uh, how to express male and female. Now, we'll get to uh, a balancing thought here in just a moment. Uh, In Titus 2, there's a lot of kind of like, yeah, what about uh, thoughts that are out there because of some of the other scriptures and for the purpose of this recording, we don't have time to go through all of them, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and so on. Uh, but here's one example in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Uh, Paul uh, exhorting these older women here to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, to teach what is good, to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so somebody might hold up this passage and say, well, yeah, but um, clearly women are commanded to act differently, that there are traits that are unique to women uh, over uh, over and against traits that are unique to men. But just in this one passage of the Ten Commands listed here or given here, eight are given elsewhere directed at both men and women um, to, for instance, to be self-controlled and pure, kind and submissive, mutually submissive in Ephesians 5.21. Uh, but the, the two that, that you could argue from this passage that are specifically aimed at women that you don't find elsewhere because men are not specifically, husbands are not specifically commanded to be submissive to their own wives, though they are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and he came to lay down his life for his bride. Um, 
and the other one of working at home. Uh, and there are other passages where you could make a case that there are some distinctions when it comes to specifically women in the context of family and women in the context of the church, but it is not applied universally, and we don't have time in this um uh, in, in these courses to, to parse out all the thoughts, these, these highly contested passages when it comes to the church and the family. What we're looking for are universals, and we don't see that in the New Testament text, where there are universal traits that are spe- specific to every woman and universal traits specific to every man. What we see are over and over again these commands to be like Christ, commands to be godly, not to be masculine or feminine. Now, a balancing thought, there are a few biblical commands that seem to be timelessly or seem to be timeless and universal, and those have to do with maintaining distinction. All right, so here's an example in Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And we see other manifestations of this in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and elsewhere. And the belief here is that while there's not a cultural prescription for what distinction uh, needs to look like, there is a distinction between male and female that needs to be maintained from age to age and culture to culture. Why? Well, it goes back to creational intent, that God created uh, a sameness and a difference in male and female to image him. And so to blur those lines, to obscure those lines, uh, obscures some of the revelation of God in the world, his um, Trinitarian nature, the, that balance of sameness and difference in the Godhead. And so for a man to intentionally present as a woman or a woman to intentionally present as a man obscures that element of God's nature, and that's why it's prohibited in Scripture. But what's not clear, again, is... Um, what that needs to look like from culture to culture. It's not uh, culture, it's not universally bound, it's not prescribed. Um, some cultures have clearer distinctions than others when it comes to male and specific uh, male and female specific clothing, hairstyles, and so on. Uh, a couple of examples here you'll see in your slides. You have uh, King Louis XIV, the, the son king of France, who lived in the uh, latter part of the 17th century. And he was considered the height of masculine power at that time. And you see how they dressed royal uh, toddlers at the time, which could be considered by today's standards very feminine. Uh, You see his kind of self-portrayal there in that middle image. He was very into theater, which again today could be considered very feminine, but at that time uh, was not. And then this, this very famous portrait of him on the right, where he's dressed in tights, high heels, standing in a what today would be considered an effeminate pose uh, with long curly hair and essentially uh, what amounts to a dress on. But at this time, in this culture, this was seen as the height of masculine power. And you see on the next slides, uh, or the next couple of pictures there, uh, he was both a warrior, but then very much into the arts and theater, and both of those are depicted, and both were on par with masculinity as it was conceived of at that time in France. Now, what is true, though, of, of France at this time was there's still distinction. So even though King Louis might have been dressed the way he was, there was still he was still clearly male in that culture, 
um, distinct from the way that the women dressed. And that's what the scripture is upholding, that uh, a distinction needs to be maintained, though that distinction is not necessarily prescribed. And that's where it just needs to be worked out at the level of family and community, uh, where we need to uh, uh, be open with one another and talking through these complex issues and what it means to maintain that distinction when it comes to clothing styles, uh, hairstyles, and so on. Uh, what I would argue, though, is in Scripture, it seems that God is over and over again more concerned with the uh, intent, the motive of the heart than the outward appearance. And all the authors that I've read uh, kind of double down on this idea that when it comes to presenting ourselves to society, it's really largely about the motive, the intent of the heart. So if I am trying to intentionally present as a woman, uh, or if my wife is trying to intentionally present as a male, that's what the scripture is condemning. Um, and uh, beyond that, uh, for a man to grow long hair, for a woman to wear jeans, that is more culturally bound and needs to w- be worked out in the context of, uh, of culture. You know, as early as 20, 30 years ago, it could be frowned upon for a woman in, in certain streams of the church to uh, wear anything but a dress or a skirt. And today, obviously, we have uh, moved away from that thinking and, uh, and uh, uh, clothing is more universal. And yet there is still a distinction that's maintained um, and the way that men and women present themselves in our culture today, and a lot of that has to do with the motive of the heart, and that's where we have to work this out in community. So in summary, after Genesis uh, 1 through 3, we see that while there are some sex-specific biblical commands, the vast majority of God's commands are given to men and women alike. Uh, the Bible's primary invitation to every Christian is not to act more like a man or a woman, to, but to be more like Jesus. And I would add that the primary command that we see is to maintain distinction because this points back to God's creational intent in Genesis 1 and 2, that male and female would reflect something of his nature. All right, so to wrap this first session up, again, you see the slide, what is male and female and what male and female symbolizes. And and, and, and I would just summarize a couple thoughts here that taken together, the distinction between male and female is primarily bodily. That distinction needs to be preserved in society because of the symbolism involved. It has to do with the motive of the heart. And so you might ask, are there any definitive fundamental male and female characteristics that transcend the bodily distinctions and are true of all biological men and all biological women? And as of right now, I would say I am hard-pressed to define any while remaining true to what the Scripture reveals. Again, while there are a handful of verses aimed at men specifically and women specifically, the vast majority are given to men and women alike, not to be masculine and feminine, but to be godly. Uh, Again, stereotypes might fit the natural desires of many or most, but not all. There are descriptions of how many people behave, but not biblical prescriptions for all. The Bible instead seems to be very expansive in what it can mean to express masculinity and femininity, what it, what it means to express male and female, as long as distinction is maintained to reveal the nature and glory of God. Again, uh, uh, attributes like transcendence and imminence. And it, it turns out that it's culture that, rigid, uh, that, uh, that is rigidly narrow 
in its understanding of sexual expression, and we'll go into that in detail next week. Uh, but when it comes to personality traits, the whole um, the whole range of personality traits is available to both sexes. So if you look at all the personality assessments, the DISC test, uh, Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, Predictive Index, StrengthsFinder, uh, any combination is open to both male and female. It's not universally true that men are more aggressive and universally true that women are more empathetic, though those can be trends or stereotypes that fit uh, many or most. They are not descriptions uh, or prescriptions for all. So you'll see a slide at the end there. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? A couple of thoughts here. Sexual distinction is worshipful when understood rightly and is a key to spiritual formation. Uh, if we obscure our sexed embodiment uh, or abuse it in other ways, uh, which is not the, the topic of this course, uh, we are obscuring the glory of God. We are not being formed into the image of Jesus who had a high view of sexual embodiment. Um, stereotypes that are baptized as biblical uh, sex differences can be harmful for someone who doesn't fit the stereotype. And we see this a lot. Uh, this will be a, a key theme in the next couple of sessions. And, uh, and we do a great disservice when we uh, tell a boy who's more sensitive to be more masculine, more of a man. A uh, hundred years ago, that might have just caused some deep insecurities. Uh, but today, there's a cultural narrative that is extremely potent that's filling that vacuum, filling that gap, um, is assuaging those insecurities by saying to that boy, well, it's because you're actually a girl. And you see that in this last point that in our modern cultural context, the world is offering a narrative that fills the vacuum in an, in an egregiously harmful way. So where and how has this all gone awry? That's the content of the next session. Um, that is just about it for this first session. There are some questions for reflection that you'll see on the very last slide. And, you know, when we did this live, we did some Q&A, which obviously we're not capturing here. Uh, I will say that uh, some of the main questions about this first session had to do with some of these kind of deeply theological concepts about uh, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God and how male and female images God and, uh, and the ideas of potentiality and actuality, you know, for a 30-year-old uh, woman today who can't bear children or isn't married, how does this kind of Genesis 1 and 2 narrative, uh, what does that ideal look like in society today within kind of this, this new covenant reality in the church, whereas in Genesis 1 and 2, there's kind of this ideal built around marriage and family with the gestational ability of women and the uh, ability to initiate life outside the self with male and those are deep and profound questions. Uh, there were questions around um, the fact that the animal kingdom also has uh, this kind of sexual binary distinction. And so why is it unique uh, among mankind? And I would say it's not just unique to mankind, but mankind follows in that pattern. All of creation glorifies God. And sex, binary sex embodiment is not the only way that, that mankind images God. Uh, there are a lot of other attributes that men and women, that, ma that humans have, 
that display the glory of God, that image God, but our binary sex embodiment is part of that. And when we obscure that, it obscures the glory of God. And, and there's so many other questions. And so we hope to release more resources in the future, offer discussion groups, because we could go down rabbit holes in just about any one of these subpoints for many, many hours. Uh, but my prayer is, and where I want to end, is that God would breathe on these thoughts that at a minimum, this would challenge you to dive back into the scriptures to see for yourself if these things are so. So, Father, I do pray, again, for everyone listening to or watching this recording, that there would be a deep hunger for truth that emerges, that you would breathe on your word to, to cause us to correspond to, to align with your a vision of reality, what it means to be human. Father, we pray ultimately that we would glorify you in everything that we do. We ask for your leadership and your guidance in, uh, in these times, in these confusing, complex times, especially regarding this topic. Would you guide us uh, mercifully in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.